Hello everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for joining me today. Uh, I am just so behind on podcast episodes. So again, very sorry. I've said that for like the last 10 episodes, but we are now on a Monday episode and <laughs> um, it will be released on a Monday. So that's at least progress, but we missed a week in there. Um, I just transitioned, little life update. I just transitioned jobs and my first day was today and I think I'm really, really gonna like it. It's It was time for a change. I've been at my old job for like five years. And so today I showed up, got my desk all set up and am getting the rundown of the entire program. It's still an engineering job. It's pretty similar to what I did last time, but just for a new program. So I'm learning a ton and that has been very, very exciting. It was like actually kind of sad, <laughs> like um, clearing out all of my old program stuff. I have a lot of friends on my old program or at least people that I really enjoy, really like hanging out with, talking to. And it was kind of sad as I was clearing out like my Skype contacts and kind of moving them around and stuff to make room for this new program that I had to move all of them and it was kind of sad. <laughs> but um, overall, I think I'm really, really gonna like the new job. And my brother actually works in the same building and he works on the same program. so. You know, he can kind of show me the ropes a little bit. And my husband also works in the same building when we're not working from home. So it's just gonna be really fun. Like I think this is gonna be great, but I will miss working with all the people that I previously worked with. And I didn't really think I would um, feel any sort of way about leaving because I was kind of excited. Like I'm really excited for this new thing. I really like learning new stuff and it was just time. But yeah, it was, um, unexpectedly a little bit sad to to shuffle all that around but overall I'm very excited but that is why it's been so busy right now I was trying to transition all my work from like wrap up all my work and transition it off to other people and get that all set up before I got this new one because uh, it's all in the same company so I mean worst case people can just ask me questions but I would I wanted to get it all wrapped up so I think I've mostly done that there's a few other things left but all last week was just such a mad rush to get this all handed off and trying to get everything set up like even into the weekend and so that is why so we missed a week we're behind but you know that's okay i'll just call it the podcast vacation and get back on track now so um if you have seen the title of today's episode we are talking about the potato famine today which i know i've been like obsessed with irish Irish stuff, <laughs> Irish and Scottish, did like the Highland Games. I was going to do last week when I missed the episode, I was going to do um, a short episode about the act of prescription, which is what made Scottish dress illegal. And that played into the Highland Games and for part of the reason, or for part of the time, you know, the Highland Games were illegal because anything like Scottish culture wise was illegal. That was because of that law. So, I wrote up a whole outline about that act and then it was pretty short and so um, I didn't think it really maybe warranted a full ep like weekly episode which in hindsight I should have just done that episode because now I have no episode for last week but I might do a mini like a mini blurb episode that's like 15 minutes just about that act because I think it's really interesting I have it all prepared and not every podcast episode needs to be like 40 minutes, I guess. So 
I'll probably do that at some point this week just because it's a good follow-on and I didn't feel like I touched on it enough in the Scotland Highland games. Um, so we'll be looking forward to that. But today we are doing the Irish potato famine. Now let me talk about the background of why we're doing this this week because, okay, I recently went back over my podcast list and added some new questions and just wanted to you know, refresh it, see what I was feeling. And I have a lot of very, very deep religious questions where it would take me so long to really dive in. One of them is like baptism. One of them is Mary being immaculate. You know, there's all these like very deep religious questions. So like I am researching those in the background and trying to compile what I think of them, but I don't have a solid answer on what I believe. Like, I don't know for sure what, how I feel about the significance of baptism because it's still a work in progress. So I've been going back and forth. And I think I mentioned this in the last episode about like, I've been going back and forth between having episodes that are just like wrapped in a bow and done like this history one. This is going to be like a history lesson or doing ones where I basically present all my research up to a certain point and I still at the end don't know my opinion. Um, so for this week, I decided to do just a wrap it up in a bow. That's kind of what I've been doing and it's just easy for me. But for coming weeks, like DM me or, you know, email me or whatever and let me know if you would like to have one where it's just like, I still don't know the answer. Like it's kind of open-ended because those are some of the most interesting questions, but I also don't have an answer for them. So, um, but so for the Irish potato famine, I looked over my list and as I was refreshing it, I saw this one and I was like, I have literally been, I've had this on my list since I started the podcast a year ago and just have never looked it up. I've never understood what happened with the Irish potato famine, I wasn't sure if the potatoes went bad, like if they didn't have enough potatoes or if all their other food went bad and all they had was potatoes. I've never even known that. But when we were in Michigan, we found this, we go to this Irish store every time we go to Michigan because it has all these very cool Irish sweaters and um, like these Guinness gear and all of this really cool Irish stuff. And when I was there, I found this little booklet that talked about the history of the Quins. So if you are not aware, um, in, and I need to research more about this too, but in Ireland and Scotland, everything is broken up by like clans, which is like your family clan. And so when I was doing the family trees for my husband's side of the family, I realized they had um, Quinn last names in their family tree. So they belong to the Quinn clan in Ireland. And so I found a book on the Quins and I was reading this and they said that a lot of Quins are not in Ireland anymore because um, I think it was a pretty big clan, but a lot of them left during the potato famine. So this really just brought it to the forefront of my mind. And I was like, you know what? I'm finally going to learn what the potato famine is because I now have it, you know, in my husband's family tree. I now know that we were affected partially because of this, because a lot of the Quins, I think, came over to America you know, in, in his family line. I'm pretty sure that was the generation they came over. And so I was like, it's time to learn about the Irish potato famine. So we're going to go over the history of how and why it happened, what was done to kind of curb the famine, how it ended and the impacts. So 
let's get into learning about the Irish potato famine. To really kind of appreciate all the history of, you know, what Ireland looked like before the famine, we're going to back up to about 1801. I found this great um, history.com article about kind of the lead up to the famine that I will link in the description. So it says that the Acts of the Union went into effect in 1801. Now the Acts of the Union made uh, meant that Ireland was considered a colony of Great Britain. So it was kind of similar to America, like when America came over and made colonies, we were a colony of Great Britain. It was the same thing for Ireland, but this was in the 1800s. So most of the government that was elected was part of British descent, not Irish, which meant that a lot of Irish Catholics um, were banned from owning land or leasing any land. So it was mostly the British or Anglo-Irish, they called them, which was like British, I, th I believe it was British who lived in Ireland. Only those people could own or lease land in Ireland. But because of the whole Protestant Catholic thing, most of the native Irish Catholics could not own land from 1801 to 1829. So in 1829, the laws that made that, the laws, how am I trying to say this? The laws that but the impact of this was that even by the mid-1800s, most of the landowners were still English and Anglo-Irish families. So most of them owned the land, and the Irish Catholics, who were the native Catholics, were working as tenant farmers. So they would pay rent to landowners and farm on that land as tenant farmers. So in a very ironic twist, this article says that less than 100 years before the famine, the potato was introduced to Ireland by the landed gentry. So I did not know what the landed gentry was. My, you know, English history is a little bit lacking. The landed gentry refers to a social class of uh, Britain. And it was a, so it was a British social class of landowners who could live entirely from rental income or who had a country estate. So in this sense, when, um, you know, when Britain came over and all these people had land and uh, they would lease it out to these tenant farmers, they introduced the potato to Ireland in about, you know, mid 1700s. So like 1750s, they introduced the potato. Then most of these tenant farmers and very poor social class became very, very dependent on the potato because it was cheap to grow, it was very nutritious, and it could get them through harsh winters and stuff. So, so referencing the fact that I didn't know if it was like a lack of potatoes or potato was the only good food during the famine, um, it was a lack of potatoes. So um, everyone was dependent, all the, the lower class people were dependent on potatoes, and then there was a shortage of them, and that's what led to the famine. I guess that makes sense from the name about the potato famine, but you know, it could go either way. So they introduced the potatoes, the British did, and there was only one variety of potato grown in the entire country, which is part of the problem. It's part of why this happened, because if something goes wrong with your one type of potato, you know, most of your country's crop is going to be um, impacted. 
So that one type of potato is called the Irish lumper potato. That's like its nickname. Um, and so that is what everyone, especially lower class people, was very or very dependent on. So the Irish potato famine started in 1845 and it is now known today as the Great Hunger. And it's very weird because I'll get into this more, but it wasn't just that there was no food. It was that the food was not being directed to the right people almost. And we'll get into why that is, but there were actually a lot of foods being exported by Ireland during this famine. Um, but again, we'll get into that later. So it began in 1845. Everything was going fine and dandy. Everyone was relying on potatoes. There were tenant farmers. The British owned most of the land and the Irish Catholics tended to work on the farms. So in 1845, there was this fungus called phyto, Phytophthoria infestans. And they call it P. infestans. And it's a fungus that spread very rapidly. And in 1845, it ruined half of the potato crop. So it came kind of out of nowhere. Like from what I understand, the potato crop was completely fine one year. Then this fungus moved in and spread very, very rapidly. And half the crop of the country was ruined the first year. Well, for a country that's like pretty much solely dependent on potatoes for, you know, the poor um, people, that's very bad. It even got worse though. In the next seven years, it killed three quarters of the crop over the course of the next seven years. So the first year seemed really bad and then it got even worse. So when this was all starting, Irish leaders petitioned Queen Victoria to repeal these set of laws that were kind of nicknamed the Corn Laws, which also applied to grain. So the taxes were pretty steep on those two items. There would be a lot of tariffs to import and export. And so a lot of farmers just chose not to grow corn or bread or, you know, grain because it would just bring in such a low profit because the taxes were so high. So that played into why this was even a problem to begin with, because if those had been profitable crops, a lot more people would have been growing them. And so these poor tenant farmers could have had a variety of foods. And so if their potatoes, you know, died or there was a, a low harvest, then they could have kind of diversified and still eaten based off their own farm. But a lot of them only grew potatoes and then the potatoes were wiped out. So they asked and Irish leaders asked to lower the corn laws and grain tariffs. It They did repeal those. Queen Victoria did repeal those, but it didn't help too much just because it didn't give enough time to start growing these new crops especially when the, the fungus of the potatoes was spreading very rapidly. So like I said, it was half the potato crop the first year, three quarters the next year um, or over the next seven years. And so it was, it continued to increase and kill a ton of potatoes. And it just, they couldn't catch up with how much grain and um, corn they can now grow. <clears throat> so um, there were lots of tenant farmers who couldn't produce enough food even for their own consumption. So even on their own farm, it wouldn't last them. So many of the, their potatoes were wiped out. And this is where I read in a different article that Ireland continued to export large quantities of food to Britain during the famine. And they even said that things like livestock and butter exports actually increased. And 
I mean, this is naturally pretty confusing because it's called the potato famine. People are starving. There were one million people who starved to death, starved to death, and another one million who had to flee Ireland because of the lack of food. So it's, but then it's, it's not like they didn't have food. It was all just being exported. So I was confused as to why that would happen because it didn't go into a ton of detail in this specific article. So I went and found another one. Uh, let's see what it's called. It was called, uh, it's called irelandcalling.com is a website and it kind of explained why some uh, food was exported. So this article says that the British ruling class at the time was headed by Prime Minister Lord John Russell. And it said he had an unshakable belief in free trade. So the reason that food was getting exported during a time of famine was because he didn't want to interfere with free trade. And he thought if you could get more money by selling your crops to England than you could by giving it to the poor, then you should be able to do that. So he said anything, he was against anything that would distort the market and damage the supply and demand balance. He kind of was paired up a little bit, or he kind of had similar beliefs as a man named Charles Trevelyan, who was the Secretary of Treasury in charge of famine relief in Ireland. So he was not a politician. He was just the Secretary of Treasury. He was appointed, and he agreed with that method of no interference to free trade for the most part. Now, he is a very, very controversial guy, and we will be going into more about him because it seems like part of what he wanted to do was good and noble and try to like prevent the loss of life, but then part of it was like very heartless and cruel, it seems. And so I will read part of this article that kind of goes over the discontinuity there and why he's such a controversial figure in uh, in the famine and in the history of this time period. And actually Trevelyan was the one who uh, was attributed with the quote that said, if land if landowners could earn more money for their grain by selling it in England rather than making it available to the destitute in Ireland, then so be it. That was his attitude. So some people under Trevelyan, uh, some of his administrators tried to stop the export of grain. They tried to close the ports. They really petitioned for him to close all the ports and get that grain back to the poor and the starving in Ireland. But um, he, Trevelyan, was basically against free handouts. So he had previously closed down these depots. They called them depots, but in my mind, they're like soup kitchens, basically. But they provided maize for the poor. And those had been set up before the famine by someone, and he worked to try to close those down. Instead of free handouts, he wanted to increase public work projects. So he, his idea was that it was better for the poor to work, to go earn money, to go buy food, um, and not to get handouts. So he made all of these kind of intricate public works pro uh, projects, making sure they would not compete with private enterprise. A lot of these were like building roads, building walls, repairing fences, things that wouldn't necessarily be profitable by a private corporation. And he financed these public works from the Irish taxes. And then using that, like in this public works program, the poor would basically sign up, do work, get money, and be able to eat. That was the idea. There were a lot of 
delays and the, these public works projects kept getting delayed because there was a lack of equipment, there was a lack of overseers. And then one of the most severe winters occurred that had happened in Ireland for a very long time. And so he kind of publicized his public works schemes and then a lot of the people couldn't actually get food or money from the public works schemes because of, you know, this lack of planning, bad administration, and then a lot of people died from the severe winter. So they'd be out building a road and it'd be super, super cold and they would die um, from, it says from exposure, which I think means uh, like winter and cold. So um, Trevelyan eventually did try. So, okay, let me back up. In this article that really just rips on Trevelyan, they, they portray him as this heartless, terrible person, which who knows, maybe he was, but in this article where they already portray him terribly, they said, oh, well, he eventually tried to help out by buying corn abroad, um, and Sir Robert Peel's government had done that the year before, but this year the surplus was very low, and so basically you couldn't get much corn in. American trade lines were freezing because of this harsh winter that, that I mentioned before. And so they said he begrudgingly tried to help get corn in to help the, um, to help the starving, but it didn't work that well. But they had just said that he didn't want any handouts at all, but then said that he tried to get a handout. So I was confused by the kind of seeming contradiction because if he was so, um, if he was so heartless and cruel, like it didn't seem like he would try to go buy the corn. So that's when I looked up just specifically the like Trevelyan as a politician. So um, this RTE website talks about the history of the famine and in particular Trevelyan's um, role in the crisis. And it really paints him as just a very like very on-time, punctual, like following the rules sort of guy, which makes sense because he ha he was in charge of money. And so he really wanted to manage the British money well. And one of his priorities and one of his rules for that is that the um, he didn't think that it was Britain's role to fund relief or to overfund relief, I guess. So this article says, first and foremost, Trevelyan saw his role as essentially limiting the financial exposure of the British exchequer to funding relief for the Irish poor whose lives were devastated by the failure of the potato crop. It says this point emerges again and again in the official papers produced by Trevelyan and used by historians um, such as this guy. Um, they characterize his rigidity punctuation punctiliousness and at times brutal attitude towards upholding the financial rules he devised and then insisted were followed by sub by subordinate officials in Ireland. So he had this he already had this financial rule that said like how money would be operated in in exchange between Britain and Ireland. Then the famine happens and he was rigid in holding up his rule. It says, that's not to suggest his contribution was not important. In fact, he demonstrated impressive leadership in directing and supervising the official relief effort between September 1845 and September 1847 when the, quote, exceptional measures were wound down. So, he did coordinate relief because it was an exception to his rule. Like, it was a set-aside 
exception that Britain said, yes, we'll try to fund this relief. And he did have good leadership, you know, from then on, it sounds like. So he wasn't just willy nilly. He waited till the rule was like officially in that they were going to have an official relief effort. And then for two years led a relief effort. This article says he rightly took credit for the operation of the soup kitchens, which at the peak of August 1847 were feeding upwards of 3 million people, a major achievement. His work ethic was also equally impressive during these years, working from early morning until late at night, dealing with what he called the Irish crisis on top of his normal duties as the head of treasury. Okay, so the one article reports him as super heartless. Like he, he hated, like, you know, he just only cared about free trade. He, he, um, it was capitalism above all, you know? And then this other article says, no, he actually did a good job with the relief effort. He, you know, created these soup kitchens. He was for the soup kitchens in the relief and it fed 3 million people. It was actually pretty good for like what the relief effort was. Um, okay. So then it said he was self-satisfied in this article. It says his own self-satisfied account of the program of relief first published anonymously um, then under his own name that was published in 1848 shows that he understood the issues of a famine of the thir- 13th century acting upon a population of the 19th century. Um, okay. He relied heavily on his officials on the ground, such as Sir Randolph Routh, the head of the Famine Relief Commission, who played a prominent role in organizing in the distribution of relief, especially supplies of grain. So yes, a lot were getting exported out, but 3 million people were getting fed in soup kitchens in Ireland. Okay, let me uh, scroll down here. So, because this is the bad part. So then it said, like, it talks about how he tried to devise these work programs. So it says, concerns about eligibility, putting people to work for relief, and generally placing obstacles in the way of those most in need of help were misplaced and wrongheaded. Trevelyan, of course, was not a politician, so in in that respect, all policy decisions were taken by the Prime Minister and Chancellor of the Exchequer. But he did insert himself, but he did insert himself into all the key decisions as someone who claimed unique authority through his considerable expertise. So then it gets into the bad part, where it says. Uh, The title of this section of the article is Social Engineering with Horrific Consequences. So this says, what he shared with the politicians and indeed the British establishment as a whole was an ideological outlook that saw the Great Famine as an opportunity to bring about far-reaching reform of Irish society, clearing the land of the poor, developing commercialized agriculture, and making the Irish economy more ostensibly modern. This fused with his providentialist evangelical outlook assured Trevelyan and his actions were appropriate and justifiable. He reflected that, quote, we are advancing by sure steps toward the desired end and saw the great loss of life as a regrettable but unavoidable consequence of this program of reform and regeneration. So he kind of used it as like a eugenics thing where he's like, hey, this will get rid of all the poor. This is fine. And he said it was regrettable, but kind of in the end, good. So that's not good. Um... He wasn't all, he was definitely not all good. But if you ever read an article that said that he literally did nothing, which is the first article that I read, it said he basically did nothing and then begrudgingly bought corn. 
it's leaving out a major, major chunk of what he actually did. Yes, he should have probably done more. And it does set up a very interesting debate about like free trade versus government assistance because he wanted almost zero government assistance, it seemed like, at least until the official relief effort was set up. But one of his rules was basically no relief, um, no handouts. Um, and he wanted all free trade. And I know now, like a lot of this is kind of a right left debate in America is like how much government assistance versus how much like you should work for your pay, even if you're, you know, poor. You know, that's a constant debate. And I feel like I'm usually on the side of less handouts, but I do think there is a very important role for like social services and stuff like, um, welfare or unemployment, these temporary relief efforts. I don't think that you should take advantage of the system or be on it your whole life and there should be an effort to go get a job and things like that. I think, so I basically am on the side of like, you need to have social services, but they're, they should be limited and with some conditions on them. But it sounds like what he was doing for a lot of these things is like sending poor people out to terrible conditions, making them work in the harshest winter ever, a bunch of them died, and then putting roadblocks in front of them to say like, oh, you're not eligible for this program or whatever. And so a lot of people didn't get help. Um, until, of course, the official relief, which is when he set up the soup, kitchen, soup kitchens. So that was a long roundabout way of introducing the um, free trade versus kind of social help social services, I guess, is the right word, um, programs that were around in Ireland at this time. And there was a debate then, and there is always a debate now about kind of the same thing. Um, okay, let's see. So it ended in 1852, which is about seven years after it started. So long seven years. Um, and the reason that it recovered, I thought I had heard a rumor that they diversified their potato crops but I can't find anything about that. From everything I can tell, the crops just ended up recovering by 1852. The fungus was killed off. Um, and there was also the kind of dark realization that it also kind of ended because so many people had either died or left. So the need to feed less, there was a, there was a need to feed less people. Um, so even if like three quarters of the potatoes survived instead, there was only 6.5 million people in the country instead of 8 million, which is what they started at in 1845. And so the population had dropped by one and a half million at least and was on a steady decline. So this kicked off huge patterns of emigration. So many Irish people still leave and they trace it back to this potato famine. Um, but right in the, that little section of time, like the 50 years after the famine, the population went down to 4.5 million people. So it went from 8 million in 1845 to 4.5 million in, uh, like by the 18 or yeah, the end of the 1800s. And the population today is almost 5 million. So one article says, yeah, it's very, very rare to have a country who's that's like developed and they have a way, their, their population is way less than it was in 1840. So it did set off this pattern of chain migrations and the vast, vast majority of Irish people live outside of Ireland today, which is part of the reason why the Quins came over 
um, or a lot of them did. And that's why, you know, I'm married to a half Irish guy or a third Irish guy who has a Quinn up in his family. And I have to go look and see if he, in his family tree, they came over during the potato famine. I do need to go look that up because I'm having a sneaking suspicion now that they did come over in the 1850s, but I'm not sure when. So even when the potatoes were kind of back, a lot of people you know, there, it was kind of a long road to recovery, and so they decided to leave. So a lot of them went to um, America or Canada or somewhere else in Europe. And uh, there are some long-term impacts. I mentioned the, like, chain emigration, but also, you know, the Prime Minister of Britain in 1997, his name was Tony Blair, he apologized as late as 1997 for how the UK handled the crisis because of all... The, you know, the taxes and not giving them the relief that they felt they needed and things like that. And then a lot of cities that Irish, the Irish uh, population moved to have set up like hunger memorials and have really tried to remember the Irish potato famine because that's what brought all of them over. Um, and so, yeah, the Irish have had a major influence in a lot of other countries and Again, the vast majority do not now live in Ireland now. They live in other countries, which I thought was very interesting. But, you know, you never kind of think about this where it's like, oh, I'm half Irish, half this. And, you know, my family came over to America. It always seems kind of like, yeah, they came over to America. That's that's crazy. That's a big change. You don't always think about the fact like that it could have been because of a huge famine and like a million people had died of starvation or disease that were kind of related to starvation. Um, because another reason for death in the potato famine I read about was the fact that so the rurals like the rural parts of the country were affected more because they were the tenant farmers. The potato went away. They were hungry. And so people gradually started trying to move to cities to find other types of food. But as the cities, as they moved to the cities, the cities got overrun and they also brought diseases that usually city, like cities didn't really see. So I think one of them was like typhoid fever or something like that. It was, um, yeah, a few diseases. And so a lot of people in cities didn't die because of hunger. They died during this time, but it was actually because the hunger caused the rural population to move to cities. And there was a whole mix of other diseases that killed a lot of people in the cities which I thought was very, very interesting. Um, so this was a surprise one. I had no idea that, you know, food was still being exported and that a lot of people died from diseases. So, um, yeah, I thought it was very interesting to learn about. If you have any Irish in your family tree, come see if they came over during the Irish potato famine. It was between 1845 and 1852. I'm very interested to go see if our family did just that. So that is all for this week. I will see you on Thursday for our Bible episode and I'll probably put out the short mini blurb episode about the act of prescription, which was um, how Scottish dress got banned. So be on the lookout for that. I will come at you on Thursday with the um, Jeremiah, the rest of the book of Jeremiah for our Bible episode. So I'll see you then. Bye everyone.